Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 43. Last week, last week we finally finished the Sermon on the Mount. It's, that's <laughs> a, that is a great feeling. Uh, Jesus wrapped up his teachings about the kingdom very nicely. He kind of alluded back to the very first teaching in the Scriptures in Genesis about what it looks like not to mimic God and judgment uh, because of how poorly we do it within our mortal corrupted selves. And instead we should be focusing inwardly on how we can model the kingdom in our own lives instead of focusing on other people's problems that leads to heartache and destruction and not furthering his purposes in the world. Um, And he continued about not teaching the message of the kingdom to those who aren't in a place that are ready to receive it don't force yourself that extra problem like go to those who who have some semblance of being hungry for it you have some aspect of continuing to ask god for wisdom uh, never being complacent in your journey Um, always seek to find more within god's hidden treasures and then he wrapped up by showing us this illustration of two foundations, uh, one on sand and one on the rocks, and kind of leaving it, asking the listeners, like, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to put in the work that's going to be harder to get up to a foundation that's actually going to last and mean something? Or are you going to go where it's easy, uh, but you're kind of ignoring the problems that are going to come later on? Yeah. Which is, I mean, isn't that just everyday life wisdom, too? Yeah. But it applies to your Christianity, and it's important to hear that because I think a lot of people try to pass off this super easy kind of, hey, just believe, and you're in, boom, you're done, you know, and they're missing, you're, you're missing the point. So, all right, well, at the end of our last episode, I was tired, but I've had my power nap, and I'm ready to go. You ready? <laughs> all right. Yeah. So we're going to be looking at uh, let's see, this is Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, and Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Kind of a long story, but let's do it. Ready? Yeah. I'm going to be reading from Luke, by the way. So here it goes. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, 
do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, whew, that's long. There's a whole bunch of stuff in here, uh, but th- let's just start working our way through. Uh, maybe just in terms of get everybody's head in the game. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount's over, and Jesus has has apparently returned to Capernaum. And from what we can tell, he's he's accompanied by crowds. Now, for what it's worth, remember I told you we had some reading from Matthew and some from Luke. Well, in Matthew's telling of the story, the centurion actually comes to Jesus in person. And Jesus offers to come to his home, uh, but the centurion declares his unworthiness and asks that Jesus simply say the word, and he knows the servant will be healed. And so you can see the similarities, but obvious differences as well. But it's a pretty amazing show of faith. And of course, Luke's version, it has, uh, you know, it's the same story, uh, it's the same demonstration of faith, but there are some, some pretty big differences. So what are those? Well, in Luke, we have the same servant suffering at the centurion's home, but Luke adds that the servant is highly valued by his master. And the lingo that's used under here, I mean, just modern lingo, you probably would say it's something like, he loved him. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that's a very different picture than highly valued, right? He, he yeah. loved him. And in Luke, we also see that the centurion sends elders of the Jews to Jesus instead of going himself. What is that all about? And why do they even go? And they don't just come to Jesus and, you know, repeat the request, like the simple ask. They plead with Jesus earnestly, and they tell Jesus— this guy is worthy. They tell him that uh, he, he loves Israel. How do they know that, Samuel? Do they know it because the guy walks around going, you know, I just love Israel? Oh, no, doesn't the Luke version say that he contributed to the building of the synagogue? Yeah, they know that he loves Israel by his behavior. And yeah, you're right. He's, apparently, he built them a synagogue. Now, that probably sounds really strange to us in this day and time. It was, I don't know, it was actually pretty common for the wealthy of the community to finance the building of uh, like a local synagogue or whatever. And archaeologists have recovered all kinds of uh, dedications, plaques, whatever, uh, just, you know, testifying to this. That It was just one of the things that was done. So anyway, he he loves 
the Jews. He loves God. He loves Israel. But here's the thing. Why? Why did the elders feel like they needed to plead so earnestly on this guy's behalf? Well, do we know who these guys are, Samuel? The elders? Yeah. No. Do we know if they've been in any of our previous stories or not? Could be, could not be. Right. We we don't know. And so, you know, maybe they don't even know if Jesus is willing to perform healing for Gentiles. We know as we've been going through, we, we, we know it, but they probably don't yet. They probably don't know whether or not Jesus is even willing to go to the home of a Gentile. I mean, for all they know, Jesus may have never been inside a Gentile home in his entire life because that was a true thing for, I would say, the vast majority of Jews alive in this day. Well, and is there something Torah-related about becoming ritually unclean by going into a Gentile's house, or is that something within, like, the oral law? Well, no. I I mean, it was part of the oral law, but yeah, it was very, very likely that he would have become ceremonially ceremonially unclean because it was also common practice among Gentiles, Romans, whatever, around to actually bury the dead inside the house. Oh, yeah. And so entering a home, boom, you're unclean just like that. So, yeah, all of those things were in play. Now, so so they were making the case, though. They were, And now think about this, Samuel. These were leaders of the synagogue going to this becoming famous kind of teacher, right, out walking around, and they're making the case, this guy, this Gentile guy, this Roman guy, he's worthy. He's worthy. Now, Where do you think they get this idea, Samuel? I mean, it kind of goes against the grain of just normal first century Jewish culture and society, but where does this idea come from that this man is worthy of Jesus's visit and and, uh, healing? I mean, it kind of goes back to God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed through Israel. Exactly. In fact, It's so good, we just need to hear it again. Samuel, why don't you read it from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yeah, I will bless those who bless you. You've got to go help this guy. He's really blessed us. It's a great picture. That's pretty radical for first century Jewish thinking. Like yes, most it of is. them were like Israel first. Everything yeah. else is kind of crappy. Exactly. And and again, we modern Americans, us, what you know, we can easily read right by that stuff. We're not gonna notice that. This was a big deal. So anyway, the story continues. Before Jesus even gets to the house, the centurion sends out some friends saying, hey, uh, Jesus, look, please, don't even trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you in my home. 
Which, of course, kind of raises the question, Samuel. Who was right? The elders or the centurion? The elders are going, this guy's worthy. And the centurion's going, look, dude, I'm not worthy. <laughs> anyway, the centurion, uh, he even adds, hey, this is why I didn't even come to you personally, which is a little bit weird because in Matthew's story, he did. Hmm. But he's saying, I didn't do it because I'm not worthy. But then he makes this amazing statement. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I don't know. There's, I don't think there's any way for us to know about this guy. He, he loves Israel. He built their synagogue. Is he familiar with some of the scriptures? I mean, is he like a, a God-fearer? He's not actually Jewish, but he, in some sense, serves this God of the Jews? We don't know. It seems possible for sure. And then maybe if he did, did he know something from the Psalms? Something like Psalm 107, verse 20? How about you remind us what that says, Samuel? <laughs> he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Yeah. He heals with just a word. Now, what's funny about that, though, is when you read the story, does it actually ever tell us that Jesus said anything? I mean, in the Matthew version, it does. Yes, in the Matthew version. In the Luke version, it doesn't. It doesn't even say it. But anyway, I just find that hilarious that, that you know, there's this verse from Psalms and this guy, this Gentile Roman guy seems to, seems to either know it or understand the truth of it even more than uh, the, the, the people in Israel. But we're, we're going to kind of get some explanation why. This is a really, really good part of the story. So the centurion, in some sense, it's he's explaining his faith, how it is that he has faith or how it works or whatever. So what he does is, at least in, in a sense, he equates himself with Jesus, at least in, in, in one area, with regard to authority. And so he describes himself as one who is under authority, suggesting that Jesus is one who is under authority. And of course, we know that that's true, right? Whose authority is Jesus under? The Father's. Yeah, exactly. And this guy recognizes that. I'm a man under authority. And, you know, just like you, Jesus. And this might be the first time people are hearing that with this story because I have personally experienced the lullaby effect where it's been taught and my brain reads that passage as the centurion saying, I am one who has authority. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people teach it as like, yeah, I have authority just like Jesus has authority because I tell somebody go and he goes. But what you're saying that the centurion saying is a little bit different. It's tweaking the story a little bit different. Right. Yeah. The, the centurion is under authority and he, is, and he recognizes that Jesus is also. So it's same situation. And now, obviously, Jesus, I guess you could say he has more authority or, you know, more at his command or something, but he's making an equation. And so how that works is the centurion understands what it's like. He knows he can send soldiers on an errand for Rome. And so he understands that Jesus can also send, you know, maybe not soldiers, but, you know, others, whatever, 
send them on an errand for God. See, in both cases, for the one who's given the commands, there's there's kind of no doubt that the errand will be completed as commanded, right? If you're you're the one who's being commanded, you're going to do whatever it takes to make that come to pass, because otherwise you get in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeing in this centurion, he's showing that he understands this, this very basic principle. As a representative of a higher authority, he is able to command others in the name of that authority. And so he's, in a sense, transferring his own knowledge, understanding, and experience onto Jesus, knowing that Jesus is representing a higher authority and that he can command in the name of that authority. It's such an awesome picture. And of course, you know, we're going to see it. Uh, we've already read it. Jesus marvels at his faith, he, you know, whatever. So Jesus is marveling. Okay, Samuel? How would you like for Jesus to just marvel about you for a second? That might be a all-time life accomplishment. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? Yeah, but the thing is, Jesus, he even kind of shows him off to the crowd a little bit. Now, I know in Luke's version, he's not actually physically present, okay? But he, he's telling the crowd, I have in, I've never found such faith. And, and I guess we should say faith in God, even in Israel, among the Jews themselves, who, above everyone, should have had great faith. Now, I, I just have to say these things because I, it, people say so many strange things out in the world, everywhere. We definitely should not be reading any part of this story as if it's some kind of a hint that Israel was going to be replaced by the church, okay? He's just holding up this Gentile Roman centurion guy as a model, as an example. So don't stretch that too far, overread, right? It just, it is what it is. Now, ultimately, the servant is healed without Jesus ever making the full trip. And here we see another long-distance healing, uh, well, uh, some have been what would appear to be high-ranking officials. This one is the, the slave of a high-ranking official, right? But you see the, the similarity. But it, it's, it's a great story. Now, there's a little bit, though, that Matthew adds. And in fact, we may need to read it just so you know what we're talking about. Matthew adds this, kind of in the middle of the story. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ooh, that's a little heavy, don't you think? Yeah. If you were Jewish, I'd be sort of feeling like, okay, that was a little harsh. That, 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 I don't know that that was necessary, but, right? The Jews... Okay, so again, get yourself back into the story. The Jews expected to share in this great banquet in Jerusalem during the Messianic era. They expected Jews to be gathered from all over the earth. 
They even expected resurrected righteous to be there. But, and, you know, we have to say this is the part where they were kind of missing the story or, or you know, uh, accidentally forgetting part of the story or something. Mm-hmm. They didn't expect Gentiles to be there, not at the actual banquet in the kingdom. And they definitely didn't expect for many of Israel, that would be the sons of the kingdom that, was, that Matthew was talking about, the natural heirs, they didn't expect for them to be outside the banquet hall watching from Gehenna. And again, Gehenna is associated with the grave, Sheol. It's, it's like the, the bad part, right? It's not the modern day concept of hell. So get that out of your head. That's not what we're talking about here. And I'm going to say it again. This should not be seen as some si- some kind of replacement theology or supersessionism here. Uh, here. Here's what you need to, it is so important you hold on to this. It is the unworthy of Israel and Gentiles that will not take part. But likewise, it is the worthy of both Israel and the Gentiles that will take part. Now, I'm not going to go a whole lot deeper here. I'm certainly not going to try to talk through Romans 11 live during the podcast yet. But if you were to go read Romans 11, it's actually a very good explanation of this if you slow down, get the preconceived ideas out of your head. Before you even begin, don't be arrogant. Read Romans 11 and you'll understand how that's working. Now, Regardless of everything I've just said, this had to be pretty surprising to many of the people that were hearing these words, you know, the way Matthew's telling the story. But this is exactly what we see in Paul's theology throughout his letters. Some people are probably feeling a moment of surprise right there. But Paul was saying, you are included in the kingdom by faith, not by the mere fact that you are Jewish. And today, we can actually turn that around and say, you're included in the kingdom by faith, not by the mere fact that you're Christian. It's true from both sides of that coin. The worthy of both is in, the unworthy of both are out. Both Israel and Gentiles enter by faith. Yeah, and it kind of sounds like maybe Jesus is offering up another one of those, how do you pronounce it, Colvacomer? Yeah. illustrations like if this is true in this case how much more true is it in this other case that makes sense to you who i'm speaking to so i feel like jesus is kind of hinting at if i'm seeing this amazing faith and faithfulness in this you know on all accounts he's a pagan gentile he's not within ethnic covenantal boundaries of israel yeah. if he has that kind of faith how much more faith should we see, should I be seeing in my own chosen people that I'm like on earth to minister to here right now? Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of the vibe that I'm also getting from, from this passage. Yeah, and there's another corollary that's also true. If this guy's faith 
gets him into the kingdom, and he is a Roman Gentile, how much more would your faith as one of my chosen ones get you into the kingdom, right? That, mm-hmm. So it's the same sort of, yeah, I love it. I'm glad you saw that. That's a cool picture. And before you move on, I wanted to jump back to the concept of authority. I, I know some people might be clapping back in their minds, especially if they're jumping ahead in the story and they're hearing Jesus say, like, after his resurrection, like, all authority has been given unto me. Um, and then they're hearing this statement like, wait, the centurion is describing that Jesus is under authority. So how how can we help alleviate someone's potential misconception or they're wrestling with that when they see normally see Jesus like, yeah, he's got all the authority? Right. And that's, that's a good question. There's a couple of things immediately come to mind. One is, okay, but where are we in the story? Jesus is still just, you know, a man on a mission, you know, fulfilling what God has called him to do. And he is, and and boy, we saw it so much. Was it back around the time when we were, uh, it was after the Nicodemus stories and stuff like that. We talked a lot about how Jesus was willingly submitting to to the Father and all those things. And we're going to see that as we continue through the story. And then what I'd kind of like to do is make a jump over to the end, and what happens in the end, what does Jesus do with that authority, Samuel? Doesn't he give it back to the Father? Exactly, yeah. So even when he's operating as the one with all the authority, it's how do I say it? It's on loan. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you've ever borrowed, if you've ever had anything on loan or whatever, you know the whole time you're actually under that, I don't know what to call it, that cloud or that that uh, something, something that says, uh, you know what, this, is, this, this isn't like permanently, officially mine. I'm actually, uh, I'm like the steward of, of that authority, in a sense. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. And so, for sure, at least right at this moment, that while we're telling the story here, there is no question. Jesus is walking around. He's totally under God's authority. That That's just, that's real. Yeah. Uh, but that authority that he does get as he walks in the full authority, he's just going to give it back. He's just a steward. Gotcha. Does that help, you think, with people having yeah. that question? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's a good question, though. I mean, it, it, see, there's so much in here. It, it can be very confusing. It's hard. All right, so where does he go next? Uh, let's see. We're, we're still in Luke. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 7, and he's reading verses 11. I'm reading verses 11 through 17. Another good story. Oh, oh this is really good. Here we go. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. 
And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Kind of a cool story, right? Yeah, for sure. But there's some neat things in here. Yeah, neat things. So, number one, this town, uh, Nain. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Whatever. It's about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum. So, they're still, I think, probably technically in the Galilee, but I mean, that's pretty far. Uh, it's down around like the northern slopes of uh, Moray. Uh, it's more of a, a mountainous region. They're near Mount Tabor. And uh, this is interesting. They're uh, across the way from uh, what we would call Shunem. This is where Elisha and the Shunammite woman. You remember those stories, Samuel? Yeah, doesn't isn't there some parallels there? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There's gonna be for sure. Yeah, and and so that's the the region that he's in. So that's important. Get that little geographic thing in here. And uh, yes, you're right. Those those uh, parallels are coming. But anyway, this kind of gives us you know a greater sense of the distance the 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 distance that Jesus travels. And it's especially interesting because it says that the disciples are with him and great crowds are with him. And just from a practical sense, you've got to wonder, so is the crowd really following him from the area around the Sea of Galilee, you know, kind of where Jesus's home base is? Or is it something more like there's a steady flow in and out as they travel? Some some go away and go back home and others join in because they're close by, whatever. I have no idea. It's an interesting picture either way. Maybe there was a little bit of both going on. I don't know. But anyway, Jesus and this great crowd, they're traveling along. They meet up with another considerable crowd coming from the town. So you got to see that in your head. I mean, just go ahead, picture a movie. Two big crowds coming at each other right outside of town, right? The one coming out of the town's a funeral procession. For what it's worth, this guy probably died that day, or I mean, you would say at least within a, a 24-hour period or something like that. They tried to bury him really quickly. But here's the point. Why, why am I telling you about that? Practically speaking, Jesus and you know his crowd, well, they would have needed to make way for the funeral procession because it took precedence. We've talked a little bit about that before. And not only that, they had to get out of the way and they would have been obligated to join in, wait for the procession to go by, follow along at the end, join them at the cemetery or whatever. That's what they were supposed to do. It's a <laughs> kind of an amazing tradition. <laughs> you know? How could you get anything done? I know. Yeah, I'm I'm just like you. I'm trying to picture my life and I'm going, oh my gosh, here I am. I got something really, really important to do. Oh no, a funeral, right? I, I, I mean, too bad. Part of your day's just gone. But I mean, you know, it's a different time, different place. I'm sure it was different for them. Not entirely, but some. 
But anyway, the only things that could have taken precedence over the funeral procession were a bridal procession and a king's procession. Now, okay, we know the backstory. Jesus actually is the bridegroom. Jesus actually is the king. So in some sense, he could have pulled rank on him, but that wasn't what he was doing in this story here. That's not how, how all that's working. So anyway, the story tells us a little bit more about this dead man. He was the only son of a widow. And this is important. Samuel, do you know why? I think you do. That Jewish cultural concept of a Badov, where the father is the provider of a very extended family, and it's the firstborn son who is commissioned to continue that legacy, honor his father's legacy. When the father dies, the son takes it up. So in this case, if the says that the woman was a widow, then the son was acting as like the father figure of the household. The caretaker, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the provider. Yeah, so now this woman, he was the only son. She's left with no one to take care of her. And she would have been, you know, given their their, their cultural norms, she would have, you know, just her only hope would have been that maybe a kinsman redeemer would have uh, either um, married her or or just taken her in or or something. But the, what's so important, and I, I kind of highlighted a little bit as I was reading it, in this whole scene, all this description, what is it that Jesus sees? Jesus sees her. He has compassion on her. Now, think about that for a second. Here's this guy. He's dead. And this dead man, he's going to have his mortal life returned to him for someone else's sake. (laughs) If that doesn't show you that it's not all about you. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And, And, oh my gosh, what a loving and merciful God we serve. I mean, these images, this is who God really is. And I, uh, anyway, now back to what you were talking about in this area. Remember we talked about Elisha and the Shunammite woman. Guess Mm -hmm. what, which other famous prophet was also kind of in and around this area. Some Samuel. Uh, well, if we had said earlier, Elisha, then Elijah is oftentimes connected with him. Exactly. And they both have stories of raising someone from the dead, and they are children, sons, whatever, of, of a woman or a widow, right? So, so, I mean, you see the connections. They're not exact matches, but you see the connection. It's the same geographic location. All three of these guys are prophets. So, I mean, this is like, I mean, the reason Luke is even telling us he went to Nain is so we'll pick up on why this story is so cool. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Jesus doesn't give way to tradition, not because he's, you know, some sort of rebel or whatever, but he doesn't do it because he sees her, because he has compassion on her. So instead, he stops the whole procession. That's got to be awkward. 
Yeah, you know everybody's having culture shock right now. What is he doing? But all he does is he reach out, reaches out, he touches the beer. That's the the thing that they were using to carry the body, not, you know, Schlitz malt liquor or something, right? <laughs> he touches it. He, it doesn't say he touches the man. And he speaks to the dead man and tells him to arise. And then this is another cool part. The dead man obeys, which is kind of funny. And Jesus returns him to his mother. So we, the reader, and probably the crowds that were there, they were seeing this whole thing. It's a great, it's awesome miracle. But usually that's what we see. We see the miracle. Oh, he raised somebody from the dead. I mean, and I mean, to be fair, it's another example of the signs, miracles, wonders, their foretaste, demonstrations of the kingdom. But we need to notice that Luke, the writer of the story, he wants us to see that Jesus's focus was on the woman in need. And that's important for us to see also. And I mean, we should see both. But don't miss the fact, the story's about the woman, what Jesus does for the woman, right? It's a great picture. So uh, anyway, I got a couple of these references for the Elijah and uh, Elisha. If you want to read those, Samuel, or do you got sure. something? You kind of look like you got something to I, say. I'm, I'm putting it on deck. We'll, we'll read yours. Okay. And then, uh... All right. <laughs> All right. Too bad this isn't a video podcast. Everybody yeah, could have seen that. your face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So so the point is, uh, they're talking about there's this great prophet that has arisen among us, right? So how about you read this one, Samuel? First Kings chapter 17, verse 23. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. That's so cool. I, I'm, the verse isn't done, but that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Elijah said, see, your son lives. Yeah. See the similarity. They said Almost that Jesus. Exact. Yeah. They say Jesus returned him to his mother, and that verse says he delivered him to his mother. These are not accidental, right? Here's another one. Second Kings chapter 4, verse 36. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. Yeah. Now, the wording isn't quite as exact, but you, you see, it's like he's returning the son to her, right? It says, amazing, amazing. Uh, and then um, just the fact that, you know, they were saying a great prophet has risen among us. How about you do Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Yeah. So they expected a prophet. So so in some sense, you can almost imagine they're not so much thinking about him being a prophet, or maybe not entirely thinking that way. Some may be going further and going, no, he's the prophet, right? We've talked about some of that stuff before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, do you want to do your thing now, or you want this last little bit? Yeah, you, you keep going, keep your train of thought, and um, I'll do mine in just a minute. All right. Well, this last thing is, and, and somewhat predictably, right? The people, they were awestruck. They were uh, afraid even, right? They, they recognized Jesus's role, but 
at the same time, you can kind of see in this the connections being made. They they seem to understand that what they were seeing was the mercy and power of God. And that you know, Luke, it's interesting the way he says it. Uh, he says uh, the report spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. It's weird that he chooses Judea because they're really not all that close to there. Judea is pretty far south. Got to go through Samaria before you even get there. And what you what you walk away with, and this is going to be important for the stories that follow, it's almost as if the way Luke is wording it, what he's intending us to understand is that word was basically spreading everywhere, all over Israel, Galilee, Judea, here, just everywhere. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all right, what do you got? Now, I just was going to say, and this is something that you and I both have learned from Marty Solomon that I think is a good contextual thing, hopefully, for our listeners to put on their thinking caps as we move forward. So Jesus was up on the mountain, and he was teaching to his disciples, and if there were crowds that were listening, this whole sermon about what it looks like to bring the kingdom on earth and to enact that in your own life. And then after that sermon is over, it says that he, the disciples, and the people come down the mountain. And with at least within Jewish thought, after a rabbi gives a teaching like that, what usually subsequently follows is putting those teachings into practice, like going and doing them. And so I see this story of this widow and this woman, and I'm called back to the Beatitudes about, you know, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the peacemakers, like Jesus is showing, like this is what it means to step into someone's life who is mourning. This is what it means to step into someone's life and to bring gentleness and to bring shalom amidst chaos and death and destruction and everything so just keep in mind that like jesus isn't just saying these things and then that's it like he's like okay now you get to see what it looks like in action yeah and in his case obviously i mean i don't know how many of us are ever going to get the opportunity to raise someone from the dead for example (laughs) right so he's, he's got a little extra mojo there with the uh unlimited Holy Spirit thing, but yes, exactly, exactly yes. And when we, as a body, do the same thing, oh, that's power right there. Mm -hmm. Good image, Samuel, good image. All right, now this next bit, this is kind of funny. Let's read through it. And and uh, we'll talk about it some because this is this is kind of good. We're looking at Matthew chapter eleven verses two through six, and Luke chapter seven verses eighteen to twenty three. I'm going to read from Luke because it's it's got a little more information. Uh, But again, same story. So here we go. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. 
And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, this feels like we need to actually connect our brains for a second and try and figure out what's going on. Kind of went out in left field. Well, it's weird. I mean, why is John the Baptist, doesn't it sound like he's questioning, wondering, confused, something? Yeah. And then Jesus sends this answer, and then he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What is going on? Well, see what we can say. See here. Number one, remember John is in prison. And I mean, and this is part of the reason that I think that Luke was trying to simply describe that word was spreading everywhere because John was in prison very far away. He's like on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's further down south. He is far away. So, I mean, when Luke says the word spread, I mean, it's really spreading, right? A lot of distance. So, John the Baptist sends a couple of his disciples to ask, what, I don't know, at least for me, seems like a very odd question, especially considering what John the Baptist had been through and some of what they had been through together, John the Baptist and Jesus. But he says, are you the one who is to come? And so, I I don't know, I'm trying to think of, well, what are the possibilities here? Samuel, tell me what you think. Do any of these make sense to you? Do you think that John was having his own little crisis of faith right there in prison. I mean, I always grew up thinking that this was a moment of like humanity with John the Baptist that, you know, being imprisoned and not seeing everything unfold, he was starting to doubt a little bit. Yeah, and and, and maybe he was. Another way to think of it, was he confused? Because Jesus wasn't really playing that whole conquering king role, right? So John's going, hey, here I'm in prison, and I'm not seeing you do what I thought you would be. Do you think maybe that's what's going on in his head? Definitely could be a possibility. Yeah. Here's another one. Maybe, maybe he was just letting his mind play games with him. I mean, you can see him kind of asking himself, hey, uh, you know... Is he really the Messiah, or is he just my crazy cousin from Nazareth? <laughs> also, maybe that one's a little bit lower on the on the tier for me. <laughs> You're not buying that one as much. No. Well, how about this one? You know that we've talked about, Samuel, this idea that, that existed in Judaism. It wasn't like super prevalent, but it wasn't, you know, unknown. It was there. This idea of, well... These scriptures are confusing. Maybe there's two messiahs. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a suffering messiah, messiah son of Joseph, and maybe there's a conquering messiah, messiah son of David. Maybe John the Baptist, the reason he says, should we expect another? Should we wait for another? Maybe John the Baptist is going, well, uh, are you are you Je- messiah son of Joseph, the suffering messiah? And is there another one to follow? That's I like that one. That's pretty cool. It's and 
Again, do we know? No, we don't. But these are good questions. We don't know what's going on with John the Baptist. But no matter how you slice it, there's some part of it that comes across like, yeah, John, John's struggling. He's struggling. So we go a little further. In Luke's version, uh, Jesus, he, he, it's like he takes some time before he answers their question. He takes some time to demonstrate for John's disciples. He shows them, and then he even kind of connects his actions back to Scripture somewhat. He, he, so he demonstrates the kingdom, and then he, he associates it back with a number of scriptures in Isaiah. He doesn't say them explicitly, all of them, but uh, you could look at Isaiah 26, 19, or Isaiah 29, 18, Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 7, Isaiah 42, 18, or Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Now, for what it's worth, all of them, you know, they're going to make some sort of reference to something. I don't know, maybe blind, lame, deaf, poor, prisoners, lepers, dead, something. I don't know. It's all kind of in there somewhere. But that last reference is particularly interesting because, do you remember where we did this one before, Samuel? I'm trying to rack my brain. I'm trying to go there really quickly. (laughs) Ah, it's okay. Yeah, I wouldn't remember it off the top of my head because I just never do that. But It's the same thing that Jesus read in the synagogue in Nazareth. Mm -hmm. And do you remember what happened there? Wow, this guy's amazing. And then they kicked him out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but isn't he just Joseph's son? Isn't he just, right? Haven't we known him? Right? Doubt starts to come in. Does that maybe sound a little bit like... John the Baptist? Mm. Very interesting connection. And so what does Jesus say? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, would you say that when he was back in Nazareth that they were offended by him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's almost like Jesus has some insight into what is behind John's question. And in the way the story is delivered to us, it's, it's as if Jesus is trying to send back this message, hey, don't let this get you down. Don't let this confuse you or cause you to waver or question. It's all good. However, in his answer, I don't think it's all hope. It's kind of like, well, we got some hope and then we also got some not hope. <laughs> and what I mean is, on one hand, he's, it's, it's like he's confirming, yes, I am the Messiah, and I guess saying, no, you don't need to expect another. I'm the Messiah you've hoped for. But, he doesn't say it explicitly, but you kind of get the inference, this all isn't going to work out for you the way you think. Mm-hmm. There's a, there is one prisoner in John the Baptist that's not going to be set free. <laughs> Right? And so, I don't know. Maybe Jesus knew. John was doubting. It was similar to the people in Nazareth. And, I mean, in some sense, you certainly can't blame him. And in in a more general sense, it's like it was predicted. Samuel, why don't you go ahead and read this one reference from Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Yeah. The key part of that, he's going to become 
a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. And you get the sense that this is what Jesus is seeing in the request from John the Baptist. And it's kind of cool what follows, how he's going to respond to that, but I don't know that we, uh, we definitely don't have time to get into that. Yeah. So comments, questions? Uh, it's just interesting. It's kind of like, especially in verse 22, whenever he tells them to go tell John what they've seen and heard, it's like, it's almost when he's given all those examples, like the blind have seen, the lame walk, etc. It's as if he's telling John, look, you're, you're seeing those symbols of the kingdom being shown here on earth. And that's yeah. what you preached. That's what I'm preaching. That should be the main goal. And then verse yeah. 23 about the, the stone of offense, the rock of stumbling reference. It's like, don't let what your expectations thought I was going to be and how maybe you're living some measure of disappointment and how it's not going the way that your expectations thought. Don't let that be the reason that you're not still on the kingdom train or like right. you're still on board with what my mission is. Yeah. It's like you're. he's trying to maybe bring John back into perspective about like there's more important things to be putting your focus on right now and the nuances of how Mashiach is supposed to appear maybe isn't as important as the work that I'm doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good point. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because in this section, we really do get the sense that, okay, you know what? John struggled. And, and in a sense, it was kind of public. They came and they talked to Jesus in public in front of people. But this isn't the last we're going to hear about John the Baptist. Jesus is going to send the, the John's disciples away back with the answer. And then Jesus is going to give us a little, uh, I don't know, a little talking to about mm-hmm. who this John the Baptist is. And uh, it's, it's kind of neat. I, I, yeah. Uh, I, f- I find it interesting that like First Fruits of Zion and their teaching of this they definitely tried to paint the picture that John wasn't having any doubts or crisis of faith because of how his character was established earlier in the story. But I think it, in my personal opinion and journey, it feels like one of those things that's it can't, based on where we're at on the timeline of things, it's something that can't be black and black or white. Um, because we don't know, but to me, like, I see value in both thinking about John's humanity and, like, he's not this 100% stoic character that isn't going to struggle in any sort of way because he's so pious because of denying himself and pursuing the kingdom. And then at the same time, like, I can also see most of his integrity being upheld at the same time that that might yeah. have been happening. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. The FFOZ guys, I mean, they're, they're awfully smart. You know, they, the way they view the world is pretty good. And so, I mean, who knows if any, either one of us are right or more right or any, uh, we just don't know. Yeah. But you know, I, I'd trust them. Yeah. Generally. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, again, I, we can't do the next section. Um, we're pretty much out of time now anyway. So Samuel, I think we call it right here. Okie dokie.
Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokimos podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best. Present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Talk to you next week.